So my, my next guest today is uh, Lee Hedges. Lee Hedges is a guy who's been in the VW scene for quite a few years. He's been significantly influential in the Type 34 Gia market in and of itself. He's the founder of uh, several Volkswagen clubs, the founder of Type Three Type 34 Registry, and then the Type34.org. Um, so I'd like to welcome to our podcast, uh, Lee Hedges. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing? Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you too. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to start off with a, a couple questions, basic questions that we kind of start out everything with. Um, how did you get into Volkswagens? Oh man, so that started out when I was a newborn actually, because my parents owned a '63 panel bus, and uh, they did a lot of backpacking up in the High Sierras. I was the oldest son, so when I was born, my dad cut a piece of plywood, put it in the uh, back of the panel van, cut out a space for the crib, and put the crib in there. So nice. I basically grew up with VWs. My first uh, car I learned to drive was a 72 Westy Camper. And then I went to uh, college in a, a 71 Auto Stick Beetle. And my first family car was a 62 Beetle. So it was just kind of the thing we did. When did you first come across the Type 34, which seems to be a pretty significant car in your in your VW existence? Oh yeah, man, that's my favorite. So. Um, when, when I was first had a young family, all I could afford was a Beetle. So I think I paid $1,400 for a running, driving 62 Beetle. I got tired of that, saw I could buy a convertible Beetle, so I bought a convertible 63. And then just yeah. slowly moved up and up. And when I was ready to get something a little more different, after my first VW Classic in 86, I traded the uh, convertible bug for a 64 type 34. I thought it was the strangest, most unique car I could possibly think of. And that was, that fit me perfectly. So that's what, kind of where it started in 87. So 1987 is when you've got your first type 34. And yeah. then compared to where we are today in, re, in respect to technology and information, I mean, in 87, no one knew anything about those cars. So that had to be, I mean, that, that's a pretty big undertaking to start assembling a database and all the information you can research. Um, that's been quite undertaking. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, you know, I, I've learned a lot over the years that you never do anything yourself. It's all about your friends. And the more friends you have around you, the better off things are. The more opportunities you have, the better communication you have. So we formed the Type 34 registry in a way to get all the owners in Southern California together, talking to each other, sharing parts, buying in on group buys. And that blossomed into international. And I developed an international rep area where we had about 30 different countries involved. And oh, then wow. the rest of the world was less organized than the U.S., believe it or not, when it came to Type 34s. Yeah. Um, so when the Type 34 registry blossomed, um, it just took off like crazy and became the place to go when you needed info or parts or buying or selling cars. Yeah, and I and I and I mean I recall you know when I was first getting into my Type 34 it was the was the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and that's when I think it was Type34.org, right? That was the first site that that you had up, right? When the internet took off, that really changed everything, right? Because before that, we did hand-printed newsletters with a mailing list and subscriber fees. And it was 25 bucks a year kind of thing. When the internet came out, everything was free and everybody wanted it all for free. And so we transitioned from a pay-for-service membership to a completely free, everything's wide open, 
no newsletters, and built a website for all that information. So that was a huge transition. Yeah, and so you you there there was a point when so taking on the responsibility of assembling all of that information, putting it all in a database. I mean, that's got to be you've got to have hours and hours and hours of research into this. Um, what what in your research your your approach to getting this research? What was like the biggest cache of information that you ever ran into? I mean, what what was it out there that was like you couldn't believe you found it that was that had so much information compared to what you could get before? So, so really there was no cache of information. That's what's scary. We developed every single bit of it through talking to the international reps, to communicating with the Carmen Museum. We got all the blueprint drawings from the original prototypes. We got the convertible drawings. So it's really just communicating with the people that we worked with, that we came in contact with. So you're never, you, you never stumbled upon any mass like, wow, look at all this. I've got a, a database from the factory of all the VIN numbers and all that stuff. I mean, all that stuff had to take time to really kind of put together. And I mean, that that seems been, to be a massive undertaking. It's been 30 years, 30 plus years that I started collecting VIN numbers. And yeah. I knew from the very beginning that that was the only way to accurately register cars, to know what year you had, what parts went on which years to help owners. And then the database of those cars just grew and grew every year we added 10 more or 15 more when i went to germany in 2000 um, we met a whole nother group of people and added another 50 and so it just every year it's a little bit more and a little bit more we're up to 11 no we're up to 1600 cars right now wow 1600 cars are all registered in the type 34 registry so, so the actually called type 34 world now okay. the type, type 34 registry kind of died out when I let other people try to organize it. And yeah. so I formed Type 34 World to take it on again and take it into the, the future. Now, um, about the Type 34, so so a couple questions. In 1987, when you found yours, was it easier to find parts and pieces for it then, NOS stuff? Was it easier to find stuff then than it is now? Well, that's a great question because uh, the Type 34 was never sold in the US. It was never serviced. It was never supported with parts. However, in the 80s, VW had warehouses of spare parts that were all cataloged by the part number. And so a buddy of mine, Paul Colbert, learned that he could call up a dealer, ask them to query for, you did Boolean searches back in those days, right. where you search for a 341 part number and all the parts that were in each warehouse showed up and you'd go buy all those parts. Wow. And that's what Paul and a couple other people did, but there were no parts. There were no NOS anything. I mean, you had to run across Pomona to find one in a box. You had yeah. to stumble on one in somebody's garage. They didn't know what it was. Uh, it was just bare picking back then. And you had to buy a complete car to even be able to drive your car. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I can attest to that. I know I needed a windshield for mine. And so I bought a whole other type 34 Gia to harvest a windshield, you know? Um, and, and it's one of those things like the cars are so unique that when you buy one, it's almost like you have to buy two so you can have parts and pieces to make one really good car. That, that is absolutely true if you don't buy one that's complete, for sure. And so uh, I'll tell you a funny little story. 
me and some my, some friends of mine and I, so this was going back to probably 2005, 2006. We're sitting around my house talking about Type 34 Gias. And I had an old hot VWs in my hand. And, and so this is probably mid 2000s. And this is from 1989 hot VWs. There was an ad with a blue, uh, a blue with a white top, uh, Type 34 that was in Pasadena. And I said, ah, just for kicks. I said, I'm just going to call the number. I called the number. The guy still had the car and I didn't jump on it. He wanted $3,800 for the Type 34 Kia. <laughs> and I did, And this is back in two, and I just bought mine for $4,500. So I thought, well, you know, that's a lot of money to put together. And at the time, being what it was then and what it is now, you know, in hindsight, it's 2020. And I really should have jumped on it because that, that was a steal at $3,500. But it was amazing to me that the car was still sitting there from a, you know, six, seven-year-old hot VW Zed, still the same phone number and everything. You got to remember that in the 80s and in the 90s, Type 34s were a scary proposition. There was no source for parts, no source for rubber seals, no supply of anything that you could use to restore it with. So people were scared to death to buy a Type 34. It was super expensive. Yeah, so no. Imagine trying to attempt to do body and paint and then never completing it. So that's kind of where it, it kept people from owning a Type 34 back then. Now the car you're sitting on right now looks pretty, it seems to be a pretty rare car. It's missing well, a roof. It is missing the roof. So, so I got a funny story to tell you if you want to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I bought a Type 34 coupe, a hardtop, an original 65C blue and white one, just yeah. like the one you saw out of, uh, um, up by the 210, right? Yeah. Up by Glendale area. And I paid $5,700 for it. And it was pristine, 80,000 miles. I loved it. I drove it. I drove it almost every day. And I had a crash in it. Double rollover on the freeway at 70 miles an hour, flipped it twice in the air, landed on the roof. Whoa. And I survived. I climbed out of the what was left of the window, started walking on the freeway and picking up all my planner pages, because you had planners back in those days. Right. Looking for my cell phone. And after that car got crashed, I decided I wanted a convertible Type 34. <laughs> so, <laughs> is that so what so that by the first one, I certainly wasn't going to get killed from the next one. And right. so I decided to create this red, ruby red Type 34. So I'd already bought it. It was uh, extremely old. It's the sixth oldest in the world. And wow. the roof was extremely rusty. So I decided at that point I wanted to create a replica to the original prototype convertibles and build my own. And so doing something like, so that's, that's, that's an interesting question uh, that, that brings me to when you decide to take that on, I mean, that's like a, a, a next impossible feat. Now with Carmen being the manufacturer of those bodies and building also the gears, was there stuff that, that, that they kind of used just for ease of production that they would use from the, the, the type, 141 to the 341. I mean, was there stuff that was interchangeable or is it all type 34 specific? Totally unique to the type 34. You'll find the majority of the parts that aren't the running gear, the running pan um, are all unique to the type 34. So um, I had a decision to make to make a working top convertible or make a roadster top convertible. And yeah. because I live in sunny San Diego where it never rains and it's 85 degrees every day, uh, I decided to go with a open top convertible. Okay. Um, have another 20 grand to custom make a folding roof with a frame and get it to work, much less cover it. Right. So I built this exactly the way you see it now. That was about 20 years ago. 
And now the the factory, they actually made a few prototypes, didn't they? Sure. They, in in November, October and November of 1962, uh, Carmen got the okay from VW to build the convertible version. And they had always shown the convertible version from 1961 when they introduced it. So it's pretty typical for Volkswagen to wait a couple of years once a coupe is invert, uh, introduced to right. introduce the convertible. And so in 60, late 62, they started building this convertible type 34. And at uh, December timeframe, Volkswagen said, halt production, stop doing what you're doing. We're not meeting quotas. This is gonna be a very expensive car. We've decided not to go through with production of this convertible. So they finished 15, 10 of which were rolling cars, five were bodies, and that was it. So there are 15 total and six still exist today. All oh. of them are in Germany. Well, I was going to say, does Christian Grunman own all of them? I know. Christian uh... <laughs> has the blue one. They made all white convertibles, pearl white for all of them, except Mr. Carmen, his favorite color was Pacific blue. So oh, really? he made special one-off prototypes for him in his color. And so the Grunman's Christian's car is the only blue one that was made. Oh, wow. So yeah, great story. on the convertibles, they have frame reinforcements and all the same stuff the other convertibles have? They That's sure cool. do. They have, they have uh, reinforcements in the chassis, of course. They have reinforcements in the rear seat area. There's a giant steel plate underneath the rear seat that reinforces the flexing of the body. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really lightweight body, and it's balanced really nicely with the long overhang of the front and the rear hoods. So even mine with a one inch steel beam that goes down the length of the chassis is have no problems after 20 years of opening and closing doors. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, I mean, I can tell you, um, I mean, for mine, it, it's interesting if you're used to collecting VWs, especially Beatles and whatnot, and then you then you just start looking at the craftsmanship of a Type 34, it's it's a completely different car. Yeah, you know? no I, I <laughs> I interviewed Buddy Hale, who Buddy Hale uh, from Type 1 Restorations, who does a lot of really high-end restorations. He's the one that did the paint and body on my Type 34. He also built, uh, he also painted and assembled David Ho's car. And, you know, we, I talked to him the other day, and we were just going back and forth on this interview. And I asked him what, uh, you know, if there's one car that he won't do, what car is it? And he said, it's the Type 34. He said, oh, they're man. just too, too much work. Buddy's work is another level completely. I mean, I'm just a just an owner. I'm not a shop. Um, and most Type 34 guys are just owners yeah. trying to get them on the road again. Buddy's work is off the charts, right? I saw uh, the blue one that he did, that he debuted at the Classic. Yeah. Um, and it, just off the charts, amazing. But that's an expensive car. Oh, yeah. So not everybody yeah. can own those type of cars and get them yeah. restored like that. Well, I think, you know, so I, my car was the gray one on the Cosmics. So, and and that car, it started out. So I bought that car originally from a guy here in town, Jerry Casey. And when I bought it, he actually has a, a koozie from the 2003 Type 34 gathering at the VW Classic. I still have it somewhere here in the garage. And the you car was- You only gave those out to people that came to the show. So you're a lucky guy. <laughs> so, so I bought that car. It was ruby red with a, with a black roof. And- my, my originally started out and said, you know what, I'm not going to, this is going to be $20,000 is my budget. And then after mishap, mishap after mishap, I got so deep into the car. I said, there's no way that I could have this much money 
and not have it just be over the top. So then it then that's when I started down the the downward spiral of throwing good money after bad. But really, my intention was to really get. I wanted to build a Type 34 Gia that it's you you you've got to not have enough. You got to be part of the more money than brains club to build it that nice because it's not cheap. I mean, it's it took it to the next level, but. I love driving that car mostly because it's a type 34 and the way the type 34s drive, but I loved, I, you know, in my opinion, I also own a split window that's, that's been in the restoration shop for a little longer than I'd like. But, um, you know, in comparison, I try to get people to understand you go to a car show, you're going to see five, six, seven, ten 10 split windows. You're going to see one or two type 34s if you're lucky. And in the production volume, what would they make total of 40, 46,000? 42,505. 42,000 to be exact, 42,505. That's what I do. <laughs> and, and to put it in perspective, in 1951, they built 100,000 split window beetles. Just That's just one year. And and this is what, the Type 34s were a nine-year span? Or is it uh, eight, eight years? Yeah. From 62 to 68 is the last year? 69. 69. And so that being said, What's the lowest production number and what's the most, is there a correlation between lowest production number and also the most desirable or how does that so, work? So currently today, the least produce, production year for the type 34s is the 68 and 69. They made about 1,045 of them. Wow. And to compare that in 1962, when they launched, they yeah. made about 8,500 of them. In 1962. Yeah. So they they knew, Carmen and VW knew they were going to halt the production of Type 34 probably in 67 and just ran it out a couple more years until the 914 came into play. Right? Right. Yeah, because the 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 the, the purpose of the 1500, the, they called it the 1500S and the Razor Edge and, you know, the purpose of that car was to be the sports car for Volkswagen, right? Clearly, it was the flagship model. It had all the best parts on it. It had the most room. It had the fastest speed, the best handling, the lowest center of gravity. Everything about it was VW's flagship car. And it had the best price, too. It had, you know, it had the, the most expensive price for an air-cooled model. Um, so it was, uh, it was always intended to reach that high end of the middle class. See, and my understanding from the history on those cars is that the reason it never exported to the U.S. is because Volkswagen was known for economical cars here, and this car was pushing the cost of a 356. I mean, it was on par so, with that price point. The, the, that's kind of a little bit of a myth, because if you look up the price of a 62 356, it was about 3500 bucks or so, right. and the Type 4 at that time was about 2500 bucks. Okay, so there was that, so there was a good difference. More expensive, but you know, you could buy a Corvair like I see. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and you could buy that, and that's a similarly specced car. Yeah. From market standpoint, for about the same price, but you had all the access to the parts and all of the service that VW didn't do for this car. Yeah. So it was never sold in the U.S. ever. So. Most of the cars then, uh, I think an interesting aspect would be, you know, me living here in Las Vegas, a lot of the cars that ended up here, we have a lot of unique cars because of Dallas Air Force Base. And I'm assuming San Diego as well, you've got, because you've got an Air Force Base in San Diego? Well, so there, 
there are a couple of ways that Type 34s came into the U.S. And believe it or not, there are more Type 34s currently today in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. than any other country in the world, even Germany. Wow. There's over 500 in the type in the uh, United States and about 250 in Germany. So wow. it gives you an idea that something was going on, right? I mean, it was a great car, was very yeah. good to drive and stylish. So the majority of the way they came in here was through servicemen because the service, the military organization would be able to ship the car from Germany back for free or that you would do a tourist delivery. So that meant that you went on vacation to Europe, you bought the car, the Type 34, you drove around for a month and part of the purchase price shipped the car back to the US. Yeah, that, that would be nice. <laughs> so that's really uh, the majority of the way that they got into the US was through military and through tourist delivery. Not too many came down through Canada, none came up through Mexico, um, and only a very few of them actually got imported into the States in the 80s, 90s, 2000 era, because it's pretty expensive. So that brings me to the, to my next question. Uh, you know, on all the VWs, the regular Beatles and whatnot, they have the uh, where you can reach out to Volkswagen, send them the VIN number, they give you the birth certificate. That's possible right. with all the Type 34s as well, where you can get all the information where it was delivered. You know, if it was ordered for somebody specifically, is it fairly detailed in respect to reaching out to Volkswagen Archives? Yeah. So Volkswagen Auto Museum has the same birth certificate program for the Type 34s as they do for every other Volkswagen. Um, and that's really the secret to the database that we keep is that every time an owner in our club, in our organization gets a birth certificate, they share that information with me and I input that into the database so we can we can keep track of how many automatics there were, for instance. Did you yeah. know there was a Type 34 automatic? <laughs> no, I'd love to find one. 6869, right? Right. It was an option back in 68 and 69. There's 65 worldwide. So we can see in the database who has the automatic or which is the right hand drive or what option for an electrically heated rear window there are and how many there are. And so there's a lot of great data in a database that if you do it for a long time, like we've done 30 plus yeah. years, that you get good data. And right. uh, so that's really what keeps us going. So, so since I'm, so since I've got you here, I got you cornered. I'm going to ask you all kinds of questions that I have. So, how many, how many years did they make it with a sunroof? Was a sunroof an option? And how much does the sunroof add to the value of a Type 34 gear? If you find with a sun, with sunroof versus non-sunroof. So, uh, electric sunroof is a really unique vehicle because it was the second vehicle in the whole world to be fitted with an electric sunroof. The only car before that was a 356. And they were both made by Goldie, the company Goldie, that made the big fabric pullback sunroofs. Right. They built the electric ones. So they are very rare. There's about 200 worldwide, and they're about 2% of production. Wow. So very rare. They were 750 Deutschmarks as an option on an 8,000 Deutschmark car. Wow. So they weren't that expensive to upgrade. But remember, Germany rains a lot. Sweden is freezing. Yeah. Who wants sunroof in their car? You don't. <laughs> right. So, and they didn't sell to the U.S. The U.S. took 70% of the Type 14 Carmagia market. Without the U.S., then who's who's in the who's in the business of letting the sun in? Right. Nobody. So I can see why that would be a rare thing to see today. Now, were were they available 
in all years? So they started in very late 62 at 80,000 chassis number. I like that. And then yeah. they went all the way through the 69 era. In fact, in the 68, 69 era, they were more common than coupes um, because they didn't sell very many, right? So everybody wanted the 12 volts, the disc brakes, the automatic engine, the electric sunroof, the heated rear window. I mean, all the goodies in the last year of production. Just like when a Viper went out of production, those guys were lining up to buy a fully loaded one because they knew it'd be valuable. Yeah. So what are the, give me the top three most difficult parts to find for a Type 34 Ghia. <laughs> uh, sun visors are extremely hard to find. They're totally unique. They get destroyed with time because the foam inside disintegrates and nobody yet has reproduced them. So that's really hard. Yeah. Uh, gosh, what else is hard to find? Any sunroof part whatsoever. The electric motor that drives it, the clutch that drives it, the clutch cable that joins the motor and the, the clutch system. There's uh, metal cables that run the roof, the length of right. the sunroof. Yeah. There's a set right now going for $1,000 used. Wow. So, and there's one set. I mean, I, I couldn't sell you two. <laughs> um, so it's any, anything sunroof related is tough. Um, dash pads are, as you would imagine, not being reproduced well, and yeah. they're falling. And with the sun, they disintegrate real easy. So dash pads are really hard to find. And, um, and I, that was what on my top three list that I had. Well, I had two of the top three I thought was, one was windshields. Windshields have to be pretty hard to come by. And then the other one, they're not? Not now. So we, so when you were looking for a windshield, it was That's the right. same time we were trying to find used cars with good windshields because there was nothing. So right. we figured out that in Germany, Lars Neufer is, has a source now in, believe it or not, Turkey. And the country of Turkey reproduces Type 34 windshields. We bought a big wood crate of 10 of them for 10 owners here in, in Southern California. And you can get them now for, I don't know, 400 bucks, brand new. Oh, wow. And ISP has them in stock. Wow, so, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> things have come a long way. Yeah, it's a, lo a lot of changes in just 10 years, huh? Yeah, for sure. With the values and the prices. <laughs> and, and so tell me about, so you've got your convertible. What, what other cars do you have? So you mentioned an electric sunroof. So um, my... My ultimate desire after building this fun little Roadster convertible was to get a right-hand drive electric sunroof model. It's called the Model M346. Right. And there are 19 of those worldwide. And so in 2004, I bought one out of England. It was oh, wow. originally sent to South Africa. And uh, that was, that was you know, if, you, if yours is a split window, is your goal, <laughs> you dream about at night, mine was this right-hand drive, electric sunroof, the coolest thing that you could possibly have for me, my personal thing. And it's in the garage here next to me up on the platform. It's been 14 years during the restoration and it's about half done. And what, what year is it? 62? It's a 65. Oh, and it's 65. The second, oldest, second oldest surviving one that we know of. And now 65, What's one of the other things that's unique about a 65? Well, 65, they have a larger speedometer that is in the dash um, that was uh, implemented about a month into production. And so my right-hand drive 65 is actually the first month of production. 
So it still oh, has really? this full gauge of the 64 and earlier cars. So wow. that was a kind of crossover thing. The speedometer got bigger like the Type 3 speedometer is, right? Yeah. Um, so 65 went to a monotone interior versus the earlier had a two-tone interior. Kind right. of a Garrett, you know, a, a, a light blue and a, and a white colored. In 65, it went all white or all black or all brown. Um, sort of with the times of chilling out, not being so garish. Now, did they ever make, I, I hear a lot of talk, and there's an article in the magazine recently about the Pagali interiors on the Type 3s. Did they ever do that in a Type 34? Sure, yeah. So the in 1966 only, they decided to do and offer a change, which would be to implement an all red and an all brown interior. That's dash pads, steering wheels, armrests, carpet, seats. I mean, like way too much of one color. And right. the red was called Pigal. Pigal is a French word, which translates basically to the red light district in France. <laughs> right. It Pigal, it's so over the top red that, you know, it's too much red. And so Pigal is the name for the red interior. And then they have a brown interior, which is called teak, like the wood, teak right. wood. So an all brown everything. The teaks, there's about six worldwide. And the Pigals, there's about 24. And they're 1966 only? 66 only. Not just type threes or also type 34s? You know, I, I, my brain is only so big to know everything <laughs> about everything. So I can know for sure about type 34. It was only in 66. I don't know about the rest of the type three line. And so I see you've got a square back in the background behind you. Yeah, I was really lucky to get this original paint 63. Uh, buddy of mine, a real good buddy of mine, Jack Fisher, found it in a garage that had been sitting since 1974 oh, and wow. never been driven, put away. And he bought it off of eBay and I traded him an automatic type 34 electric sunroof oh. to get it. Did you really? I did. That's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty steep trade, but I mean, you know, I, I, I remember uh, having a conversation with Christian Grunman and uh, I had heard that, the, the Germans were in town. And so I drove my type 34 to the beetle barn here in town because Christian was there and I kind of pull up and in the type 34 and my type 34 was a little over the top. So he comes out and he sees my car. He says, Oh, this is your type 34. And I'm like, yeah, you know, no big deal. Uh, kind of rare. He says, yes, I have the prototype. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting here thinking like, how do you compete with that guy? But the point I was bringing is as I was talking to him and we started talking about stories about Volkswagens, he, he made one statement. He says, but what is an all-original car worth? It's only all-original one time, and how can you put a value on that? You know, so in respect to your trade, you know, you're, you're kind of approached from the same standpoint. It's it's an original car, untouched. How, how can you put a price on it? Because how many are there? And every day, there's fewer and fewer. Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons why I fell in love with this particular one. One is that it's a color that's beautiful. Gulf blue is an understated, pastel, light, unassuming blue. Um, 63 model is only the second year they made the variant, and there's only 55 of those worldwide total, yeah. 62 and 63s. Really rare car that no one knows about. Everyone thinks squarebacks are everywhere, but these are rarer than type 34s. Really? Or not. Really? So that was the other thing, the third thing was Jack was in love with my electric sunroof automatic. He drove it more than I did. We would go to 
We would go to uh, El Prado. We would go to the Type 3 meet up in Cayucos. I would take my convertible. He would take the white car. And wow. he fell in love with it, and I wanted to see him get it. I wanted to see him own it. He worked on it. He fixed things, um, and he drove it. So when I fell in love with the squareback, we figured a way to make it work. And oh, that's, that's awesome. Between friends, right? You make Absolutely. it work. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's just, it's always good when, when you can, you know, kind of, kind of work something out with a friend where they get something that they're, that it's almost worth, if you're selling a car, it's almost worth selling it for a little less to somebody that, you know, really loves the car versus just selling it for a price on it. You know what I mean? And so uh, I, I've always found that one of the things I like to do is, it, you know, anytime I ever buy anything, if, if I've bought something and I've got a piece of part left over, if it didn't cost me anything, I just give it to my buddy or they pay me whatever I paid for it. You know what I mean? But I think that's, that's kind of the brotherhood. I think that the true Volkswagen guys or, or car guys kind of do for one another. If, if they know the passion is in it and, and it's like something that you just can't find on the street. But the reality is if it costs me nothing and it means everything to my buddy, it's worth it just to give it to him, you know? Well, and that's the essence of it is that in your life, you have uh, 10,000 friends on Facebook and you've got five guys that you trust. Right. You've got five guys that you would do anything for and that would do anything for you, right? And yeah. so that's priceless. And that's, yep. that's what Jack and Pedro and John and, and um, a couple other guys do for me. So. Well, that's, that's awesome. Um, let me ask this question. What is the most unknown, interesting fact you believe about the Type 34 Gia? Oh, man. Uh, well, uh, the one that everybody is a myth is, is that the design was stolen from the Corvair. That's right. a big that, <laughs> right? uh, Corvair was designed in 57 or 58, and the Type 34 designed in 59. And uh, yeah. no connection between them other than this styling with the side belt trim, with yep. the water body, with the wider, slimmer design, with the round taillights, with the four headlights. All of those were um, very cutting edge Italian design motives in cars. And so Simca, um, Plymouth even did it with their Barracuda. Um, the Corvair did it. The BMW 1500 did it. So a, a really wide range of cars adopted those styling techniques. The Type 34 was just one of them. Yeah. So the biggest myth, I think, that I constantly, I'm driving by and somebody goes, hey, great Corvair. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> right. What do you do? <laughs> my, my, I think my favorite's when they call it a 2002 because the taillights. They go, oh, that's a BMW, isn't it? And you're like, yeah, yeah, sure, it's a BMW, whatever you I like. My, one time I left my uh, my 64, my first one, on the street uh, without an engine in it because, of course, I lived in an apartment back in the 80s and, and didn't have a garage. So then I came out in the morning to the car and a cop had ticketed it and he t ticketed it as a BMW 2002. <laughs> I took all the scripts off of it. So, yeah, it's, that's part of the joy of being a Type 34 owner is that you do a little bit of educating at the same time as you do enjoying the car. No, that's, I mean, I, I tell you, that's what I, that's besides the fact that, I mean, for me being a Volkswagen enthusiast, short of finding and these are, in fact, to an extent, a coach-built car. But it's short sure. of finding a, an offshoot coach-built, these are the next best thing. In addition, I mean, they've got that balance of, like, you can actually find some parts and pieces for them. 
it really was a really well thought out, planned out, built, engineered vehicle. I mean, I've got two of them sitting out. If if I open that garage, you see two of them sitting out there in the driveway, get ready for uh, ready for um, uh, ready for restoration. So the the my my push button dash car is the one that I went to Kalispell, Montana, and picked up, and that one's the one that uh, you know I I would. You know, one day I may do one stock and I might do that with the 60, with the 66 that I have out there. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, Perfect. I like, you know, for, for me, I like to, you know, the car is missing parts and pieces. And, you know, my philosophy behind them is if it's all VW stuff that I'm doing to it, you know, the disc brakes and a type four pancake motor. I mean, I, I, that, that was my goal when I built the gray car was to build. If Volkswagen said, go into the parts room, pick anything you want put it on this thing, you know what I mean? And just, you know, just, it still maintained its classic design yet. It was the best technology I could squeeze into it, you know? And, and I tell you, if you, I wish if, if I still had the type 34, I'd let you drive a type 34 with a 2.6 liter pancake motor in the back. And you want to talk about a car that's got some power. I mean, so, and a Berg, fi, Berg five speed, no less. We have a, we have a 911 T from 1970 here. An original yeah. 911 T6 cylinder that we drove up to the mountains yesterday with my buddy John. And clearly a six cylinder is over the top, way more than you'd ever need in any car. And um, there's a there's a side of everybody that wants that power, right? Yeah. And then when you get in a stock, original, preserved or restored Type 34, there's a whole different oh, yeah. of building it stock is 10 million times harder than building it custom. It's less oh, expensive, but it's much harder to do. And that is where the value of Type 34s has really grown. It isn't in the cars that have been customized. Your your example is a one-off, right, for value and so on. Most of the customs that get customized, they are worth much less than an original condition one right. that you find in Germany or that's been well-preserved. So that's kind of been my thing. But you know what? That's, a, that's what's great about VW is that it's – it's your own car. You can do whatever that you want with it, right? You can customize it. You can yeah. lower. You can raise it. You can race it, or you can leave it alone and just enjoy it. So that's that's the brotherhood that we share. Is that it's the same car to everybody else's different tastes, right? Not everybody would take the roof off of, of a sixth oldest Type 34, right? <laughs> right. I did it because I wanted that experience that you couldn't buy. Even you couldn't go out and buy one of the six original convertibles. They're oh, just, yeah. It's not available. Um, yeah, even they're not there. They're not there. So the best next thing is to to do it yourself. And that's kind of whenever anybody gives me crap about doing that, it's about my car, my decision. And and I give everybody else that same um, that same benefit of the doubt. You wanted it done that way. That's your car. You go do it that way. Enjoy, enjoy it. You know, that's, that's what we do. No, absolutely. I think what, uh, again, one of my favorite things about the Volkswagen is that it's really a blank slate and, and the car is such a people's car that every walk of life owns one of these things. And, and we always get surprised when you see that little old guy pull up in that type 34 that he bought in Germany when he was there in the service. And, and, you know, you see, you see all these people from all different walks of life, but there's something about a Volkswagen that connects us all together, whether it's the simplicity, the engineering, or um, the uniqueness of them. And even, you know, 
as far from it as they seem today as a rebellious vehicle. But back then, buying a foreign car was really being right. rebellious. That's right. So, no, I love it, man. I think you're doing a great thing. I think without guys like you, we'd have such a difficult time kind of putting together the pieces. And it's really, I think it's an awesome thing that you're doing, documenting the history, keeping all all that information organized in a, in a central database, free to everybody to access, and so that the cars can continue going on, being found, restored, and built. Um, I'm thankful for your website. It's helped me out with a ton of stuff when I was trying to figure out if things were right or not. Um, but I, I, I can't tell you enough. So give uh, give everybody your website again. And uh, So the website for T34 World, which is the worldwide organization for Type 34s, is t34world.org. And that has every single bit of historical restoration, local current parts sources, colors, options, it has everything. No, it's, it's all- fantastic. It's fantastic. I've I've looked at it and it's one of my favorite things to do, even when I got into Volkswagens was I, I remember I had a, an issue, a 1989 issue, uh, one of the special hot VWs where they did a year by year difference of the Volkswagen Beetle. And I would sit when I was a kid, I would sit when I was younger and I just study it page by page by page. And you also have the similar thing on your website where you have the year by year differences, which I think is so unique because it's, it's one of my favorite things to do is kind of look out and kind of spot a car and try to figure out what year it is just by looking at certain little changes. But I mean, you've got that information on your website. I grew up the same way that when we went on road trips with our, our family, our dad would say, I'll give you a nickel if you can tell me what that is. And you pass by and you're like, it's a, it's a Bentley. And he's like, nope, it's a Rolls Royce. And the only thing difference is the damn hubcaps, right? So right. we grew up seeing an eye for detail like that. Yeah. And that's why we know the difference between a 56 and a 57 oval window. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. What's the difference? Put you on the spot. A 56 and a 57? Um, 56 and 57. Well, I think it's, I think there's a, <laughs> now you got me on the spot right single no, the, versus cool the exhaust so, pipe but also maybe the steering dampener as well i don't know if 56 had a steering dampener i think 56 57 is a the outside so what we do <laughs> is we see them from the outside we see them on the samba ads we see them yeah, on eagle tailpipe yeah and we're like oh my god there's a 52 split zwitter and we yeah. know exactly what it is and that's just our our brains that are dumping all this data that we learned over decades Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's so much fun. No, I might, you know, some of my favorite things were due. I, I focused a lot of my time in the mid sixties. So what, you know, like the first year that the, the last year that Volkswagen didn't have a key on the passenger side of the beetle. Right. What was a 63, the first year they dropped the hood crest. So one of my first cars was a 63. And so I studied like all the nuances of a 63 to be able to give you every difference. And, you know, you got a I, gas right, exactly. But That's a I big mean, deal. Yeah. No more sticking that wood stick down in your gas thing. No, absolutely. Well, 62 is the first year for the gas gauge. So, but <laughs> <laughs> there's so, but that's the cool thing about the VWs. You know, they seem to be so run of the mill, yet they're yeah. so distinct and and different in each one. And it's, it's interesting because every single year, something news discovered that was like a no big deal option for one year. And then they find out and all of a sudden that's the year of that one to get. So um, I tell you, so on your website, is there a way, how are you able to keep the website going? Is there a way for people to help donate some money or do anything like that to help you guys keep stuff going or it's all volunteer out of pocket or what? So here's, here's another, 
here's another philosophy that I've kept for 30 years. After we decided to go free with the internet in 2000 or so, yeah, we decided that we would get more contributions from members. We would get more cars for sale. We would get more parts for sale if it was all free. So yeah. everything is absolutely free. We never ask for any money. Um, everything's handled by me under the behind the scenes. And I build the website. I manage the website. Um, it's all free. It costs me, I don't know what, it, very little. Let's put right. it that way. Yeah. And there's no reason to make money on something you love. That's what you have a job for, right? That, that's it. <laughs> a job that's not Volkswagen related to keep my family happy and my house happy. And you do your passion, which is what we do here. You, you got to do that for the love of what you do. As soon as you make money on it, you destroy it. You lose a little bit of it. No, and absolutely. You never wanted to do that. No, that's, hey, listen, that's a great philosophy. Look, I go out of pocket for all the stuff that I do. This podcast is all out of pocket. And I do it because I believe the VW scene deserves something like this. This is also part of documenting history here today. 10, 20, 30 years from now, this will be a recorder that's out there in cyberspace somewhere. And I believe it's all important part of history as we look back and constantly look at the 70s as to what they were in the bugging days and all those kinds of stuff we've got today and the people that are doing things. And that's really one of the purposes of my podcast here is to be able to, to reach out around the world and people can have access to different things they didn't know. And if they get listened to a podcast because they like something custom, they might just keep listening through. They might stumble on this Type 34 interview. And then they start going down that rabbit hole of finding all those unique and interesting things so we're really lucky today to have all the technology we do and be able to do it ourselves that was never done before right and oh, to be absolutely. able to have what you do for the love of what you do everybody's going to benefit so that's no. awesome no absolutely well i definitely appreciate you taking the time to uh to chat with us now if somebody's want like what is is there an ultimate there is a big type three gathering that they do i know type three does there things something type 34 specifically that's done annually biannually or anything like that so um on the 50th birthday of the type 34 we all gathered in germany and 155 of them showed up wow set new world record in the u.s it's much smaller of course we gather every three years because it's type three, type 34. We gather right. every three years in Cayucas for the type three rally, which is in central California. We spend three days driving two or 300 miles every day, enjoying each other, seeing cars. That's really what we do. That's the big meeting place. El Prado is every year. So yeah. we tend to meet at El Prado every year. I think we had 50 or 60 type threes at the El Prado last year. So it's right. really huge. Uh, but there were only three Type 34s, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. Guess what I drove? What did you drive? Ty the Type 34? <laughs> the Squareback. I drove Audrey, my Squareback. <laughs> of course that's, I that's awesome. <laughs> well, you know, I have a square back too. So I just picked up, I, I just reacquired a 67 that I sold to some friends that I didn't want to sell. They built it and kind of customized it. And then they wanted an oval window that I had. We worked out a deal. So, I've also got a square back now too. That's kind of a that's kind of a driver that I like. Um, but I, I can tell you, I don't think anything beats a Type Three in respect to driving down the road and feeling like a really like a like a real car. You know, um, if you want to go 80 miles an hour on the freeway, no problem. Yeah. You don't have to hug that right lane and watch out for trucks. You're in the fast lane. I yeah. mean, it's a thoroughly modern car for sure. Yeah. No, they're great. Well, hey Lee, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, that type three, the type three, the type 34 gathering, the type three gathering, when's the next one going to be? Uh, 
let's see. I think it's 2020. Okay. I think so it's 2020 if I had to remember right, because we did it in 2017, and it's every three years. Okay. So for those those people out there with type threes that are listening right now, they've got about two a year and a half until they can have their car done and debut at that event. If you want to bring it to the event, the premier type three event. Other than that, you can come down to Prado, which will be this year in June, I'm sure. And uh, yep. I'll probably see you there. It'd be a miracle if my type 34 were done. I'm sure my square back will be there. So I'll look to catch up with you there. I appreciate you coming on the podcast, Matt. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to actually sitting down and, and chewing the fat with you in person at one of these car shows one of these days. I'll buy you your first beer and we'll sit down and chat and enjoy it. I really, really like what you're doing here. I can't wait to see how everything turns out. More importantly is we, we tend to be kind of separated from everybody and seeing right. all the different people you've chosen for podcasts is going to help us understand a much wider array of the market as well. So I look uh, forward to it. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for coming on Lee. Yeah, no worries. All right. Thanks buddy. Bye. Station wagon to have a number house. The 1974 Volkswagen, covered by BW Motors.